This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 200, entitled Debate, Closing Statements, and Reflections. I appreciate you so much for supporting the podcast for 200 episodes, and I look forward to doing 200 more. In this week's episode, we will listen to the closing statements from my recent debate with Kelly Powers on the topic of whether the Old Testament teaches Unitarianism, which of course is the doctrine that states that the only true God is one person, namely the Father alone. I start by offering my five-minute closing statement where I assess the strengths of what I have said I point out the parts of my argument that Kelly Powers didn't have an answer to, and I appeal to the listeners to, as objectively as they can, look at the evidence and the facts that have been presented and to make their mind up based on those points. After I offer my five-minute closing statement, then Mr. Powers comes in and gives his five minute closing statement, which turns out to be a little bit more than five minutes, but you'll see how that goes. Now, after hearing these closing remarks, I will actually bring on Brandon Duke to offer his post-debate reflections. This is the first interview that I've done on the podcast, and I hope that it turns out well. I think you will actually enjoy what Brandon Duke has to say in regard to the strength of biblical Unitarianism in the Old Testament. So without further delay, let us turn and listen to the closing statements from the recent debate entitled, Does the Old Testament Teach Unitarianism? I really appreciate everyone tuning in and staying up late to to watch this debate. And uh, as you could see, um, sometimes the Bible's messy. We get that. Uh, But I do want to remind the audience of my key points, which I do think after our discussion, they still stand as very powerful points. I pointed out that God is described as a single person with singular pronouns, singular verbs, singular adjectives, and singular pronominal suffices over 20,000 times, equivalent to the number of verses that are in the Old Testament. That's a lot, okay? Um, I also mentioned a variety of passages where God was described as a single person with singular pronouns, and then it would have exclusive statements saying, and there is no other, there is no one else beside me. I was all alone. I was by myself. I think those points still stand. And I don't believe that those points were actually tackled uh, by my prestigious debate partner here. Um, Malachi 2.10 to where the one father is just described as the one God. Um, No mention of that. Uh, I mentioned five titles, uh, the Holy One, the Mighty One, the Righteous One, to where titles for God actually say that he is one person. No response from my debate partner. Uh, My second point was that we have all this ancient testimony of Jews who were commenting on the God in the Old Testament, and they never described him as more than one person. In fact, they would describe him specifically as one person. And we have Jewish testimony, and we have non-Jewish testimony pointing out that the God described in the Old Testament 
is a single person. Um, I do think that uh, the historians are correct that the doctrine of the Trinity did develop. Um, and I think the very fact that uh, Kelly Powers uh, admitted that none of the words for God in the Old Testament, whether it's uh, Yahweh or Adonai or El or Elohim, none of them refer to the triune God. That's very interesting. So God never reveals himself as a triune God in the Old Testament. Um, I think that's very fascinating. But yes, the Trinity did develop in the fourth and fifth century. There were no Trinitarians in the Old Testament. There are no Trinitarians in the first century. There are no Trinitarians in the second century. And there are no Trinitarians in the third century. And again, Gregory of Nyssa said that the doctrine of the Trinity is not the same thing as Jewish monotheism. They're not one and the same. And the thing that seemed to completely get overlooked um, by Kelly was the fact that the promised Messiah is a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Judah. He's a descendant of David. And descendants, by definition, are younger than their ancestors. So Jesus is younger than Abraham. Jesus is younger than Judah. He is younger than David. So he can't be some sort of pre-existing second member of the Trinity if he is the descendant that biologically descended from these major players. And the uh, New Testament opens by affirming that point, not denying it. And I really consider these points uh, extremely important because I do think that the abundance of evidence, all the different times that God is described with singular pronouns, I, me, he, him, myself, yourself, himself, over and over and over, God is telling us through the inspiration of the Hebrew Bible, through the Old Testament, which by the way is 77% of our Bible, that he is one person. I don't know how many other times he has to say it in order to make that particular point. And I hope that the audience here is able to perhaps take a step back from the perspective that they grew up with, perhaps take a step back from the church that they're attending, and just look at the facts, okay? I've tried to point out what experts are saying. I've tried to point to the grammar. The grammar was dismissed quite frequently, unfortunately. Um, and we can't do that because words have meaning. And where do we get those meanings? Well, we get them from the grammarians. We get them from the lexicons. We get them from the Hebrew grammars. And you can't just dismiss those to fit your doctrine. You can't do that. That's not very persuasive, in my opinion. I think the languages are very important. We have to take them seriously. We have to define them. And Echad is a cardinal number. If you're counting to 10, you start with Echad. Okay, it means one. It doesn't mean two or three. Okay, Is is also the Greek cardinal number used in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is one, medically masculine. So I thank everybody for watching this, for staying up late and uh, participating in this debate. I appreciate uh, the others that have been involved in putting this together, but I politely encourage the listener to consider the weight of the evidence, consider the passages, consider the definitions, consider the grammar and Make a decision for yourself. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much, Dustin, for that closing remarks. All right, uh, Kelly, you're up for your five-minute closing. First off, I want to say thank you, Dustin, for taking the time to be here. Dustin said, said earlier I might put him to sleep because he's a little bit down out there on the East Coast. So maybe there was something I shared that might have kept him awake a little bit longer. Let me be clear and blunt about this. With all the things that he shared, I'm not dismissing. But the point is... What does the scriptures teach in their exegetical context? 
I pointed out different words and what they meant in their Hebrew. I went to references to point out that God has been revealed as more than one in certain places. One what? God is always one in regards to how he's been revealed. But he's also been revealed in different places. Again, forget the royal we, don't buy into that. Genesis 1.26 shows both how God has been revealed as a singular and as a unity together. Genesis 19.24, you cannot dismiss this. The Lord rained fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. All, and I didn't even have to do my own Kelly, you know, I want to read into the verses attitude. You go to Amos chapter 4. You be a Berean at the Berean perspective. You be a Berean. Go to Amos chapter 4. Read verses 10 and 11. Go to Isaiah 13, 19. Go to I, uh, Jeremiah 50, 40. You tell me what's the context. What's the context? Look, I, I believe in scholarly information. I do. This issue of the Trinity coming later on, centuries, centuries later, whatever, hogwash. Hogwash, right? When you read the New Testament, we weren't in the New Testament, but in the scriptures over and over and over, Jesus is called God throughout the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is called God throughout certain scriptures in the book of Acts, the Hebrews, and other places, John chapter 14 and on. Talks about him being another of the same nature. So these are all pre, before these centuries, centuries, centuries later, hogwash stuff. Okay? And then we have church fathers pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. So all this smokescreen stuff at the train came all this so much later, bunk. Just a bunch of bunk, okay? But tonight, the discussion is, or the debate, but it was very respectful. Very respectful. I don't think anybody had to throw popcorn at the TV. There's some people who didn't like me. That's great. Don't like me. That's wonderful. But do the scriptures teach that God has been revealed more than one person is in the Old Testament? The answer is clearly yes. The angel of the Lord is called Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 17, Genesis 18, throughout the different places. Genesis 16 with Hagar. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and he's revealed as being called Yahweh. In Zechariah 1, 2, and 3, the angel of the Lord, who in that context is also called Yahweh, not just a normal angel representing, but called Yahweh, speaks up to the heavenly realm, and the Lord of hosts talks back to him. You've got at least two being called Yahweh in that proper context. When I shared earlier, Isaiah 48, speaker who is speaking here, is identified as the first and last, the one who stretched out the heavens. And the speaker is still speaking in verse 16. He says, come near to me and listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret from the time it took place, I was there. That's not the prophet Isaiah. That can't be Isaiah. Look, he's the one claiming, I was always there, the eternal one. Just back to verse 12 and 13. The first and the last, the eternal one. So in context, this speaker is the Lord. Now, what's fascinating to me is, is you got Jewish commentators. Of course, the Jewish people who are the, of the Jewish faith are going to reject the Trinity. Hello? They also reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So, I mean, come on. Seriously? That's your evidence? If that's your case, we might as well throw out the whole New Testament too because they reject Jesus. Where in the Old Testament do the Jewish people say, yay, I believe in Jesus? It's not there. That came through the revelation of Jesus Christ being the eternal Logos, the Son of God, that came. This is what John wrote. John referenced that in 1 John 4, 
9 through 14, this references, I believe, a direct reference here to Isaiah 48, the one that was sent by the Father and the Spirit, which goes with what Paul said in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. These things date back to what was spoken of prophetically. Again, this is important. Remember in John 1, 16, he talked about the pre-existence of Jesus. He brought it up. I didn't, so I'm only going off what he said. John 1, 16, John the Baptist said, he existed before me. He has a higher rank than I. Hello, let's talk about birth, shall we? So this issue of genealogy, of course Jesus has the genealogy coming through the lineage, shows that he was the Jewish Messiah. But Jesus existed prior to his incarnation. In fact, John, the All author right. of John, references right, Kelly, get a bell. That's, that's, that's time right there. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's my fault. I forgot to hit that Can one minute bell, man. Yeah, seconds. I guess I'll give you 10 seconds for me John missing that, missing that one minute. That references bill. Jesus back to Isaiah 6 and calls Jesus Yahweh. So Jesus did pre-exist before his incarnation. Thank you. All right. Well, you just finished listening to the five-minute closing statements. And today I actually have a special surprise. I have a guest with me for the first time in four years on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast to talk about his impressions of the debate. And I got a few questions for him and you may know him already. His name is Brandon Duke. He is a pretty popular person in the biblical Unitarian circles, at least here in the United States. So Brandon, welcome to the well, Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm deeply honored <laughs> to be your first guest. I, uh, I'm a huge fan of the, the podcast. I've been following it since the beginning and, uh, I'm uh, I'm very happy to be here to talk about the debate and uh, uh, not to not that I just want to take a victory lap, but I do want to make sure and give you a high five. I, th I thought it went very very well, and uh, I'm excited to be here to talk about it. Oh, you're very kind. I, I appreciate you saying that, and uh, I'll be sure to give you the twenty dollar bill I promised you for making all the nice comments to me. And <laughs> uh, but I, I did have some questions for you, and I thought that it would be good to kind of hear some of your impressions, specific impressions on the debate. And, you know, I want you to feel comfortable saying whatever you think, um, even if you feel like there were some points to where I wasn't as strong in my argumentation as I probably could have been. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, but I want to give you uh, free reigns to say whatever you like. So my first question to you is that um, I wanted to hear about your immediate impressions of the debate after you watched it for the first time, because I do think that you watched it live when it took place, but what were you thinking immediately after the debate? Well, other than being glad that I most of the time closed my eyes to the, uh, to the chat, <laughs> which tends to get rough and tumble. Although there's a pretty good, actually a, a representation of Unitarians. I, I appreciated that. Um, you know, my, my first reaction is that I just, I loved your opening case. I, I thought all four points were strong, um, especially the, the first three, um, you know, it, it seemed obvious to me that you had prepared well and he hadn't. <laughs> um, and I think that that difference in methodologies is revealing. It shows who's really serious about the topic. Um, I thought Powers was not really prepared to respond to your arguments two and three at all. Um, like to, to describe the historical uh, the historical development of the Trinity and, and be able to, to counter, uh, the Unitarian narrative on that, our, our case that it's, it's a late development. And, 
you know, the scholarly case that it's a late development. I didn't think he was prepared for that at all. And, um, and then to respond to that, sort of the question was Moses, a Trinitarian, you know, that this, this question of what was Jewish monotheism like, I, I don't think he really was able to respond to that all either. Um, and of course, you know, the, the most of the debate for me revolved around your, your point one about, you know, the, the singularity, the singular personal pr pronouns and verbs and adjectives. And what was the, what was the last one? Pr pr something suffixes. Yeah, they're <laughs> pronominal suffixes. So the way they work in Hebrew and in Aramaic is that if you were to say like, you know, the pen of Dustin, mm. um, if you were to say his pen, mm. uh, you would use the word pen. And then you have a little marker at the end of the noun. It'll be the pen of him or the pen nice. of you, or the pen of me. And so those are called uh, pronominal suffixes, a singular or prenominal suffix. And so they're found at the end of the nouns, and they have to be counted because they're part sure. of the singular references. Sure, that makes makes total sense. Well, that was new terminology for me. My Hebrew grammar is not that good, obviously. So, uh, but but the, the, the total weight, I think, of that, um, he was trying to counter with um, with a few um, sort of cherry-picked proof texts to show that, that basically those don't matter that we can pull from from these others, and we can talk a little bit more about that in detail later. But I just I just thought that was that was a weak approach, although it's a typical approach that I see out I mean, among Trinitarian uh, apologists. So you know I, I remember at one point he said there is no verse that states unequivocally that God is one person, and I remember thinking. Uh, Dr. Smith just gave you 20,000 plus verses that state unequivocally that God is one person. So, uh, so, so what part of this argument aren't you getting? So no, I, I, uh, I was, I was really pleased. I was, I was sort of happy for you. Cause I, I thought you, you represented your case. Well, I, it is obviously you prepared well. And, um, and I was happy for the, the movement. We, we need more debates that, um, that, that put our case out in front of the public and in, in a, in a, in a way that is respectful and is, has tight arguments. So I, I really was, I was sort of a proud maybe is, is the wrong word. Cause I'm just a, I'm just a happy onlooker, but I was, uh, I was pleased with it. I, I, I thought it went really well. And, you know, we can talk about if there's some things that in retrospect you might do differently. Um, but I, I would say I'd, I'd give it a nine or a 10 out of 10. I, I thought you did really well. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I appreciate that. And again, there's, I'm sure there's another 20 in that somewhere there for me. <laughs> I, I will fully acknowledge I, I am not an, uh, 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 an independent third party. That's, that's going to be a, uh, an uncritical uh, bystander. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've got a lot invested in this. So, you know, when we, when we see somebody make the case, well, I think as Unitarians, we need to come alongside them. We need to cheer them. And, you know, I, I would imagine you got plenty of heat after the, the debate too. So it's, it's where it's important for us as Unitarians to, to close ranks uh, around people that, that have the courage to enter the arena. And, and hopefully that's happened. And, and if it hasn't happened, people, uh, people reach out to Dustin and, and make sure and, and uh, show him your support. You mentioned this a little bit already, but my next question to you deals with the strongest points that you felt were in the debate from either side. Uh, you've touched on a little bit there, but maybe yeah. if you could elaborate a little bit more on uh, the things that you thought should be perhaps main points of any sort of debate on this topic going forward. Yeah, what do you think? Absolutely. I 
like I was saying, I think your points one, th- one through three, especially are devastating for a Protestant opponent, right? Uh, they, they have to deny obvious truths from history about, uh, you know, the, the unitary monotheism of, of the Jews of Israel. They have to deny the history from the time of the apostles through the 400s AD. Uh, they have to ignore church councils. Um, and then they have to ignore the plain meaning of tens of thousands of verses <laughs> to, to try to counter those. Um, and, you know, the, their, their defense in, in all of those cases, even, uh, I don't want to be too uncharitable, but even fairly competent defenders of the Trinity, I find um, that a pattern where they ignore the weight of, of a bulk of evidence um, and, and instead try to counter it with, with some specific outlier. So some outlier proof text or some uh, quote from, from a church father or, you know, some his friendly uh, Trinitarian historian um, and ignore, you know, this, this other pile over here. And, um, you know, powers actually said this explicitly. He, he said something along the lines of, I didn't get the exact quote, but he said one proof text showing God is multipersonal would overwhelm your entire point number one. Um, that it doesn't matter how many times God is called a singular person. If if you could find one text that implied or, or that said that God was multipersonal, that that would overwhelm all of that other evidence. And I would just say, why would any reasonable person accept that, <laughs> that approach to evidence? Um, why would it not be that, you know, the, the let us passages, for example, I mean, as Unitarians, we have great responses to what's actually going on there. Um, but, um, but even if we didn't, why wouldn't someone shrug and say, well, okay, I've got four instances of that versus thousands and thousands of instances of this, this other case, uh, or, or the evidence for my case. Um, it's just, it's a strange methodology that, that, I find Trinitarian apologists have to approach, you know, if I had to summarize powers position, it was something like the, the old Testament didn't teach Trinitarianism, but now it does teach Trinitarianism. (laughs) So he he wanted to say um, that, you know, in response to the debate prompt, you know, does the OT, you know, teach Unitarianism? He wanted to say, well, yes, sort of it did, but now it doesn't. And, um, you know, I, I hear that from, from others too, that the idea is obviously it's, it's a, it's a later revelation. The Trinity is, um, but you know, if we can press them on that, as you did, um, it forces them into some really strange positions if they're a Protestant and you know, that, that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, progressive revelation, it just presents all kinds of problems when it creates contradictions within the text. Um, and within our scriptures. So, um, so if I wanted to give Kelly, uh, uh, I, I want to, uh, Mr. Powers, if I wanted to give him credit for something to the debate during the debate, I would just say that he was practiced with his, uh, with his proof texts regarding, you know, angelic messengers that appear to be Yahweh, but they're representing Yahweh. Um, I mean, you know, Justin Martyr would be, would be proud. So, um, I, guess I would I would give him that for strength but I, I just think that that, that our case your case uh, was just stronger do you hear any particular arguments from mr. powers who tried to suggest that the God of the Old Testament is a plurality did you hear any of those particular arguments that maybe you've never heard of before or that you really feel like need a definitive response from 
the biblical Unitarian camp. Yeah, actually, they were they were familiar. I, I, and based on your prepared responses to them, <laughs> I guess they were familiar to you too. Uh, you know, it's obvious that you had prepared briefs on on many of them, right? So he was uh, he had a few proof texts to try to try to show a situation where God is referred to with with plural pronouns uh, or in, in the plural, and you know they're they're weak. You know, starting with the Genesis one twenty six. Um, he, he loved leaning on the angel examples to try to create some kind of multi-personality within Yahweh, where you've got Yahweh talking to Yahweh or something, um, which is, you know, standard fare. Um, he also sort of made the move that, you know, the new Testament says so, so who cares about history? Um, you, you know, I think all of those are things that as Unitarians, we need to be prepared to re respond to. Um, you know, one thing that I would maybe add uh, to to this is you know he made the typical pushback that the Shema is describing sort of a, a compound unity that um, that Ihad means one but it could be one group or one being that's multi-personal or something like that um, which is interesting considering that verse two explicitly does call God a, a he you know it's his commands that Moses is passing along which then, you know, his Yahweh's commands that are then uh, identified with with the the one God in in verse four. Um, so maybe that's something that Unitarians need to be prepared to push back on hard is is to say, well, regardless of how you want to say it's it's one something else, um, the text itself forces what kind of one thing, one person that it is. Um, so that's something that maybe I would I would I would lean on. Um, in in sort of helping prepare people for for dealing with this in the future and then i it might do unitarians some good to go read justin martyr's dialogue with trifo for themselves to get a taste of where this kind of thinking came from and to see where trifo says hey this is an innovation uh even of himself he says you know there's those that don't agree with me uh but i think you really should i, I think that this this way of reading the old testament is good and you know maybe to add to that people might availed themselves of the, the history about Marcion and the way that the Old Testament was abused in the early Christian centuries and the way it was disrespected in many ways um, to give us some pause before we are willing to uh, cite progressive revelation and, and uh, reevaluate what these texts meant compared to what the original audience would have, would have understood them as. Are there any points admitted by Kelly Powers that you found interesting in regard to his position perhaps when i would ask him questions in cross-examination and he would admit or respond in a particular way anything that he said that perhaps uh was uh, of interest to you yeah i i thought it was interesting uh that he is his response to your historical point about the development of the trinity uh was not to reference a source but rather it was to uh, it was to just say this is total bunk. He used the word bunk three or four times <laughs> to respond. And uh, that kind of hand waving just is not it's not it shouldn't persuade anyone. It should be a red flag that he's really not prepared to to respond to the the argument. Um, he also seemed to admit that you had to read the Old Testament through the New Testament like as a filter in order to find the multi personality in it. In fact, he, he basically explicitly said that in his first in his opening, um, which is which to me is quite the uh, quite the admission. If you're going to say that 
that basically no one could have or did understand the Old Testament in the way that you now do. Um, now you have this really big problem with a deceitful God and a, um, you know, you, you look at what are the two potential explanations of this is one is every author and every uh, in the audience of the Old Testament was clueless about what they were writing and what they were reading. Um, or you have a, a, like a duplicitous God who's, uh, who, who's deceiving people or allowing people to misunderstand him um, as, as being, you know, a singular person. And then later on going, aha, actually there's, you know, there's more than one of me uh, somehow. I, I, I think that's quite an astonishing thing to admit. And I, I think a lot of evangelicals will, will do that, but I, I think, it's a it's it's an amazing admission, particularly in the course of a debate where he's supposed to be defending the uh, Old Testament in and of itself. Um, you know, it, it to me it it gives the debate away. Um, and I guess the last thing that I just found shocking is for him to say that I only need one multi-personal reference to prove my case. You know, in in response to these thousands and thousands of texts where God's a singular, identified as a singular person with with singular pronouns, etc. Um, that's, that is an, an amazing kind of, I don't know, uh, like you want to talk about eisegesis. Uh, I can't, I can't think of a better way to, to do eisegesis than to start with your objective in mind and to comb through thousands of verses that are against you to find the one that you can say, aha, here we are. So yeah, I, I, um, I, I understand where he's coming from, but I, I think people should listen carefully that he was willing to admit those things and, and, and think about what that, the implications there'd be of that. My final question to you is uh, less of a question in regard to the, this particular debate, but on kind of the future outlook. Do you think that debates actually accomplish anything worthwhile in the exchange of ideas? Or is it just that those people who watch the debates really already have their minds made up and no one is really swayed one way or another. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we all know uh, people that will listen to a debate and they come out at least apparently right where they started. And uh, maybe there are those kind of people out there that they're, they're really either not listening or, um, or that they're, you know, so closed off to examining the evidence that, um, that the debate doesn't have any impact. But I, I've got to say, I, in my experience, I just find that everyone is listening to everything and whether we want to admit it or not, when we get a new piece of evidence, it goes in the calculus. <laughs> um, just talk to, to Christians who are doubting their faith, you know, that they, they, they lean, they become agnostic. Uh, usually it's, it's not because they want to, they, they found evidence that way. And, and it happens the other way too. people that come to Christianity and they're like, look, I, I didn't start out this way. The evidence just started whacking me upside the head. So look, I find to answer directly, I find debates incredibly valuable especially those where the, the participants have prepared carefully, where they present really good arguments and where they're, they're, in, a, um, they're in a mode of uh, like seeking further dialogue, of, of seeking to understand. I really appreciated your opening where you said that you're a truth seeker and that you're, you're seeking to um, examine his, his arguments, your interlocutor's arguments and are, are open to them. I, I think that's really important that we both are clear that that's what we're doing and that we also, you know, do it. Um, as opposed to just a, an attitude of, of success where we're, we're trying to uh, sort of win a debate. Because, um, you know, you can win a debate using rhetoric. You can win a debate 
using logical fallacies. You know, there's all kinds of ways that you can, um, you can sway people that are not, you know, epistemically, uh, righteous <laughs> that you know they're underhanded and they're, they're the wrong way to go about it so i think if if we can approach debates in the way that you did and um and there's always going to be some audience out there that's um our audience member that's that's listening and thinking about it and you know for many of us in the unitarian movement we can all attest to that i i know many unitarians that started out for example seeking to uh debunk the work of dr dale tuggy and they end up becoming Unitarians in the process. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a valuable, I think it's a valuable thing. I hope that we can, we can do more of it. I hope that Unitarians will support Unitarian debaters when they see them both during, you know, before, during, and after the debates, because it is, it's this enormous investment of time up front. It requires courage and, and skill during, and then afterwards, you know, the, the, the kinds of discussions like we're having today all, all happen. And there, there can be a tendency for, for a guy like me to, 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 you know, with hindsight, uh, you know, really find a lot to criticize with either side. And we just have to remember how hard it is. And, you know, there's, there's truth that comes out in these things. And, you know, I went through before our discussion here and I just flowed the debate in a flow chart and it was astonishing to see how little uh, response Mr. Powers made to each of your arguments. And I, I applaud you when I, when I looked through, I couldn't find any of his arguments that you didn't make, make a response to it of at least some sort. So like that, that requires an enormous amount of time to prepare to do something like that. And not everyone's going to be nerdy like me and flowchart. <laughs> They're going to come away with, with those initial impressions. So whatever those are, it, it helps to, to, to extend some charity, frankly, to both debaters. Um, but especially those that are, that are arguing for, for our position where we, we believe these are truths that are really important and we want the world to hear them. So I would say, yeah, I think it's, it's valuable. And, and thank you for, for being willing to step out and do that. Look, one, uh, one quick side note that you may, you may not even include in this recording is when I was first becoming a Unitarian, um, one of the most helpful debates to me was your debate, your debate with David Barron about the preexistence of Jesus. And it really helped me uh, in exposing me to the, the arguments on both sides. I, it was a new um, material for me. And so to have you know, both sides of the argument laid out in a, in a fairly clear way, um, it gave me, it was basically a, a huge list of footnotes where I could then go follow up and, and do my own research. And it, it was very influential and very helpful to me. So you know, this stuff lives for a long time on the internet and uh, who knows out there who may benefit from it someday. So yeah good thing that we're uh, that there are people that are willing to get out there and do it well that's encouraging i always wonder about what the next debate's going to be if there's going to be another debate does anyone even listen to these debates is it even worth it so it's uh it's good to hear your perspective on that especially someone that's been listening to these for quite a while and uh, i'm happy to hear that you've personally benefited from listening to not just a side that you're currently persuaded with, but also with other perspectives as well. I think that's, that should be the point of the debate is uh, listening to two people coming together who have well-researched their topics and hearing what they have to say and seeing which arguments hold water and which ones are not as strong as they might initially appear to be. So Brandon Duke, I appreciate you coming on and being our guest 
Absolutely. I would say so. thus far, you have been the the best guest I've had on the show ever. <laughs> I'll take that trophy and be ready to pass it along to whoever comes along next. Really, it's it's been an honor. It's, it's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. What do you think of the closing statements? Do they reflect the reality of the debate and the arguments presented therein? Be sure to let me know in the comments, especially if you are listening on YouTube. And I look forward to interacting with my listeners. Please join us next week as we talk about the importance of pursuing truth, speaking carefully, sharp thinking, and accurately defining our terms as we talk with others about the one true God and his human son, Jesus Christ. And we've got some very exciting content coming up for the podcast, including a series on the literary motif of misunderstanding Jesus within the Gospel of John, where Jesus says something that is meant figuratively, but he is incorrectly interpreted literally by his dialogue partners. This is a common literary motif in the Gospel of John, and it happens in many of the chapters within the Gospel, and we'll take some time in an ongoing series to look at these and what they have to say about the Jesus that the Gospel of John is trying to present to his readers. So please look forward to it. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a tip or donation, you may check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.